welcome to the Recovery Daily Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Abbasi. I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic and stroke survivor. Today is day 17 of our plank challenge, and my sissy called to let me know that she is on board, and sorry, sissy, I'm going to tell everybody. So she decided to start like two days ago, so she went right in to a minute and 10 seconds, (laughs) and uh uh, anyway, anyway, um, she's right on board, so it's great. It makes me nervous that you started midway, um, so I'm just hoping you don't hurt yourself. Is all. <laughs> You're not a young, you know, a a young chicken anymore. What is it? Anyway, yeah. Okay. Um, day seventeen. We've got. If you're on the three minute track, you're at ninety seconds. And if you're on the five-minute track, you're at 120 seconds. So that's where we're at. Good luck with that. And today, we're going to take a stroll down sobriety lane. And we're going to look back at how the promises have unfolded for me over the past seven years. Now, the promises are, if you're not familiar with the program, um, they are outlined in our Alcoholics Anonymous book. Uh, The big book is what we call it. And they describe the benefits that AA members often experience as a result of working through the 12 steps. And these promises are considered by many in the recovery community to be both a source of hope and a goal, you know, goals to strive for in sobriety. Um, When I first got into the meetings, I saw the promises on the wall and I thought, "Mm, there is no freaking way that stuff is going to come true for me. I really, you know, and I, and I imagine that I wasn't the only one who walked in there and thought that. Um, But I realized today in my morning meeting, as we read a story out of the big book that um, referenced this, like, timeline of how things unfolded for the the author of the story, um, I thought, you know, the only thing that I was told is these things unfold sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, but they will if we work at it. That's what I heard, but I didn't have an example, really, other than some of these stories in the big book of how the promises like how long it took them to unfold for people. So I thought, huh, why don't I look at this? So I spent some time today and I just closed my eyes and, and went back through like, when did I experience the promises? So I have jotted this down and we'll see, uh, if it makes sense or not. I think, I think I have it jotted down. So it makes sense. We'll see. Uh, we'll see. You will be the victim of of this. Okay, so um, we're going to fast forward through my first detox um, time frame because I did not, I didn't follow the suggestions that were given to me. And so I drank again. So we're going to fast forward to detox number two. And this happened in Uh, I went into detox on April 27th, 2016, and I was sober April 28th, 2016. So that's my sobriety date, the day after I entered into detox for the second time. So when I did this, I turned off my wanter. That's what I call it, my wanter. Um, Meaning, I would not allow myself anymore to make decisions for myself based on what I wanted because it wasn't working. And um, I realized that after the first time that I went to detox and didn't listen to any suggestions. So this time, I turned off my wanter 
and I followed all suggestions. No matter what they told me to do, I, I would do it. And this is when I invited Rachel version 2.0 into my life. Um, she was the one that was going to stop doing what Rachel 1.0 wanted to do. And, um, and now we were going to be a big girl and we were going to follow all suggestions. So we entered in year one here. So year one, the first 90 days, I just remember being absolutely exhausted and putting one foot in front of the other. I remember keeping my wanter off. I, I don't know where I got that drive. I guess I got that drive because, um, I got to a point where I was willing to do whatever it took to get sober. And what it took was for me to stop recognizing whether I wanted to do something or not. It didn't matter whether I wanted to do it or not. I just had to get up and do it. And um, and that was key for me. So during this first year, I learned how to say yes when I wanted to say no, you know, to be of service. I learned that I had to get uncomfortable in order to get better. I had to be of service, uh, meaning make coffee, volunteer to lead meetings or be secretary and um, participate in outside activities, which were things like the summer picnic or um, there were a bunch of ladies that we uh, made cookies together uh, for Christmas and that kind of thing. So I also learned how to practice meditation and um, and what that meant for me was reeling my thoughts back in like every second. <laughs> like meditation in the beginning was me sitting there with what felt like a hamster wheel spinning in my head and I was constantly sticking my finger on it to stop it from spinning like every second. So I went to a sobriety, I mean a a uh, meditation meeting on Fridays at Club 12 in Leesburg and um and I would sit there like every Friday and just like have that hamster wheel spinning for 10 minutes. Um, while we all sat in, in silence. And that's what it took for me to come back and just keep doing it over and over and over again. That's what practice looked like for me. I learned this first year how to not be embarrassed crying in front of people. Um, I didn't really have a choice because every time I shared, I cried. And, um, and my voice would shake and my face would shake. Like I was just an absolute vulnerable mess and coming to the rooms and showing that kind of vulnerability and having nobody judge me or make fun of me was like a significant, um, experience for me. And that's how I learned that it's okay. All that stuff that's inside of me, the only way I was able to let it out is because the people in these meetings allowed me to. And and it was okay. Like I knew it was okay. And it took um, beyond the first year, for sure, uh, to have that stop happening. It, it, took, um, it took a few years, actually, for that to to stop happening. I learned the first year that I'm not unique. Um, I learned this when I was doing step five with my sponsor and I sat down with her and told her all of these, you know, secrets and, and deep thoughts and shame and guilt and talked about all that stuff with her. And her response was, yeah, me too. And I was like, what? You know, I'm not the only one in the world who's ever felt this way. Um, I also learned how every group in the fellowship is a little different. You know, we're all the same. We're all suffering from the same disease. But 
getting a group of alcoholics together, it's different, you know, depending on the group. So I ended up, when I got a new job in Herndon, I started just going to all these different uh, meetings from anywhere from, you know, where I lived in Charlestown out to Herndon and everywhere in between. I stopped at all these different meetings and tried them out. And I just kept going until I found one that made me feel like I was at home, like made me feel um, like I was part of the family. And, And the place that kept drawing me back was Club 12 in Leesburg. So that is still where I call my home. And I also learned in the first year how to act as if, um, meaning I wasn't really comfortable with my outlook on God. I didn't like to say the word God. Uh, I was embarrassed. Uh, The whole concept of a higher power, like, I was so wrapped up. I've talked about this just recently. I was so wrapped up in the idea of a higher power that I wasn't I wasn't considering what the purpose was, you know, what it was going to do for me. Instead, I was more wrapped up in what I was choosing as my higher power. And it kind of unfolded for me um, in interesting ways. And the first year, another thing that stood out for me is I ate a lot of candy. I ate a lot of candy. I actually had to detox off the candy after the first year. But that's okay because, uh, I mean, for me, it was okay. I did whatever I had to do to not pick up a drink. And um, and so I did eat a lot of Skittles during that time. Um, so during the first year, I was thinking which promises came through, came true for me in the first year. And I would say promise number two, which says we're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. That one came true for me because I knew that I was free from the obsession. It was the first time I had ever been free from the obsession and um, I, I, I was able to find happiness in things other than the bottle. And I just honestly didn't know that was possible. Um, I know that sounds weird to people who are not alcoholics, but I just didn't know it was possible to find joy outside of being drunk. And then I also think in year number year one, that promise number six, came true for me. And that was that the feeling of uselessness and self-pity would disappear. I no longer felt like I was worthless, like I had no, you know, purpose in, in life other than, of course, to be a mother. And, um, and I, you know, as much as I I felt that strong uh, purpose within me to be a mother. I wasn't able to do it because my obsession with alcohol was overriding anything else, anything else that was inside of me. So um, that that disappeared the first year. I no longer had that like poor me um, what's going to happen, like I'm destined to fail kind of thing. So enter year two. Year two is where promise number seven came true, and that is that we will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Um, I entered into year two with this I was depressed a little bit. I I celebrated my first anniversary. My sissy had a little party, and that was so nice. And then when I left the party, I thought, so I have to do this for the rest of my life? And that's dangerous. That That was what got me drunk the first time I went to detox, when I got out 
and I was only sober for like two months, I thought to myself, there's no way I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And so I drank again. And so when I left my sister's house after my year one anniversary, I was driving home back to West Virginia. And I thought, oh, I'm going to have to do this for the rest of my life. And I felt it. I felt that same feeling that I might as well just drink. And I didn't. For some reason, I kept driving. There was a gas station where I was, I would have stopped, you know, that I considered stopping. And I just drove. I didn't, I turned off my wanter is all I can say. Um, I wanted to stop and I just drove because I knew that that was the next right thing. And I have to say that next right thing idea, I, I didn't really mention that for year one, but that got me through year one. Um, that was a part of the turning off my wanter and just doing the next right thing. If I didn't want to go to a meeting, I stood up, I turned off my wanter and I said, what's the next right thing? And I stood up and then I what's the next right thing? I got to go get dressed what's the next right thing? I got to pick up my keys, you know, and that is truly some of those days. That's how it went. It was like minute by minute. What's the next right thing? So, um, that has gotten me through a lot of close calls and, um, and it did that day that I celebrated my first anniversary and I, and I'm glad it did because it didn't happen after that. Let that was just a one-time thing. Um, in year two, I also kept practicing this meditation. I, I still was going to this club 12. I was going to the Friday meditation meeting and I just kept trying to sit there and clear my mind and think about my breathing, um, and, and get that hamster wheel to stop moving, um, to stop spinning. I kept suiting up and showing up to meetings, to work. Um, to my therapist. I went to an addiction therapist for two years, so I kept going to her. Um, and that's really, it felt like the first into the, I guess, through the end and then through the second, end of the first year and through the second year, I felt like there was a lot of just suiting up and showing up happening the next right thing, just kind of going through the motions. It wasn't like I was a robot. It wasn't like I didn't have enjoyment in my life. But there was, it became, I think what was happening is I was building a habit of doing the next right thing. I was getting really comfortable turning off my wanter and doing what I'm supposed to do. It's almost like I was learning how to adult. And I hadn't known how I hadn't learned how to do that yet, because uh, I think I've mentioned it before. They say that when you start drinking, you stop growing, and it was like I stopped growing um, in high school, you know, and I had to learn how to be an adult, and so I did a lot of suiting up and showing up. Um, I started looking a lot healthier. I think I had to get my license redone during the second year. And um, <laughs> the difference between my two licenses was so astounding that I was showing everybody. I was like, look how amazing I am. <laughs> um, but I was proud, you know. Um, my confidence grew and my feeling that I deserved happiness grew. My anxiety began to not be so scary. It didn't, it, I guess... My medication was working for sure. My medication started working because I wasn't drinking anymore. But um, I also was tackling those things by working the steps. I was tackling those things that were hidden, you know, in my dark place. And by tackling them, the anxiety was also shrinking, you know, um, the regrets, the shame, the guilt, that was shrinking. The uh, anxiety that is correlated to my 
chemical imbalance in my body that I need medication for, that's still there. And it's still there today. But it's manageable. You know, it's manageable the way that uh, it should be. It just wasn't, you, I couldn't manage it when I was drinking. And um, I continued with the steps. It took me over a year to do all the steps. I was not rushing. I think I I stalled out at step four, <laughs> where a lot of people stall out because I just didn't want to write my stuff on paper. And uh, the same thing happened at step eight. I didn't want to write this stuff on paper. Um, but I could I could see through being consistent that things were beginning to change. I could see, I remember in year two, being able to see that my financial situation was slowly, I mean, ever so slowly improving. It still seemed like it was overwhelming, but it was the first time in my life that I was, my financial situation was getting better, um, that I was actually paying things off for the first time in my life. And my ability to focus on things mentally improved enormously. I got so much more um, uh, able to think through large concepts at work. I, I started to be able to put together large strategies and write large documents. Like I could really start being able to put together the whole picture of things that I was working on at work, if that makes sense. But this lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows, I started to really connect with people. Um, I had finally found some meetings that, that I felt like I was starting to grow like this family of brothers and sisters. And, and even there was like a guy that reminded me of like a grandfather uh, figure kind of thing. So there was like, it's like I was building a network that felt like, you know, a second family to me. And I started, I started really caring for these people. I stopped wanting to serve myself as much as I wanted to take care of other people including, um, you know, my kids and, and my family, my, you know, my real family. <laughs> um, so that was year two. And then year three and four, that these, this was a, a critical time when a lot of the promises really started coming true for, for me. Um, in years three and four, I got to the point where I was asked to do a 12-step series at Club 12. So um, every 12 weeks, a new person would guide the 12-step meeting and do uh, a step a week for 12 weeks. So I was asked to do this, and I remember being super freaked out, and I totally cried, like messy, ugly cried first step one. And um, I still feel a little embarrassed about that, but I know I shouldn't be. It was just really, I was terribly passionate that day. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, and then I began to see my experience as an alcoholic as something that could lend hope to others, not only in the program, but outside of the program. I started to feel more comfortable sharing with other people that I was in recovery. And it became a thing for me to share with my team at work. Whenever I would get a new employee on my team or whatever, I would share with them that I was a recovering alcoholic. 
And then whenever we'd get a new staff member in, like director in HR, I would share with them also that I was a recovering alcoholic. And it was because I wanted to be a resource for others. I wasn't telling people because I wanted to talk about myself. I was telling people because I realized that I had been through the depths of what the disease can do to you. Um, And I realized that the only way that I got sober was because I told somebody at work who knew what to do, who became a resource for me. And, um, and that's why I, I, I really believe that that's why I was able to get sober and have the support of my company. So I began to deeply care for the well-being of those in the fellowship as uh, time and time again, individuals lost their lives. People that I was sitting next to, people that I was friends with, um, they were losing their lives to the disease. And and I be- I became truly passionate about us as a community. It was no longer just me. It became us. You know, that family feeling that I that I started to feel in year two, um, that was just getting stronger and stronger, and the family was getting bigger and bigger in my heart. Um, in year three and four, I say three and four because I don't know which was which, um, but that in that time frame, I began to get on my knees to pray beside my bed, And this was because I had heard people talking about it in the meetings all the time. And I thought, "Um, I don't know, that seems a little embarrassing (laughs) or whatever. And, um, and it just made me feel awkward to hear people say, and I just get on my knees, you know, and I'm like, I don't, what if somebody walks in and I'm on my knees beside my bed? And then I got to the point where I'm like, you know, if this makes my relationship with my higher power or my uh, resolve to stay sober, if this makes it more intense or stronger, then I'll just try it. I mean, what's it going to hurt? Everything I've done so far, I just tried it because they were suggestions. Nobody suggested that I get on my knees, but I thought, I don't know, it's working for other people. Let me try it. So the first time I did it, um, I shut my door to my room. My dog was in there, but I shut my door to my room and I turned out the light and I was like, okay, nobody can see me. (laughs) And I said my little prayer. It was just like, I'm grateful for, or thank you for my sobriety. I think that's what it is. And then, um, so I started doing this every night before I went to bed. And then after like a week, I'm like, all right, I don't need to shut the door. Nobody's coming in here. And um, and I kept doing it. And then I would say it was it's been a couple years since I have felt like I wouldn't be embarrassed if like my daughter or my son came in the room and I was on my knees beside my bed praying Um. So I don't feel embarrassed about it anymore. But it's it's taken a while for me to be like, what if somebody walks in? Which is silly, you know? It's silly, but that's just me, you know? That's me, and I'm being honest. That's what I do here. Talk about how silly I am. So that was what I started in year three and four. And let me tell you, it has actually become such a, like, humbling experience to like get down on my knees beside my bed and I um, I kind of cross my, you know, hold my hands together and then I put my head down on my fists and I say my prayer. So I'm kind of like totally folded over. And the first thing that I do is I think of my children's faces. That's my... Um, my favorite thing to do first, because 
I don't know, because it just fills me with so much love and happiness when I think of them and I picture their faces. So that's the first thing I do when I get down on my knees to pray. And then I pray. And um, I just feel like no matter how bad my day has been, no matter how stressed out I am or whatever's happening in my life, pre-stroke, post-stroke, when I get down on my knees beside my bed and I put my head down on my fists, um, it's like there's nothing wrong. It's like I'm home. It's like I'm in my little uh, protected cocoon and nothing can hurt me. That's what I feel like at that moment in time every night when I do it. And it's become something that I just love so much because it makes me feel so comforted when I do it. So I do it all the time. Um, So that's quite a difference to go from, I don't want anybody to see me doing it, (laughs) to this is my favorite thing to do. And now I don't care necessarily who sees it. I just want to make sure it happens because I love it you know, that kind of thing. So enough about that. Um, And then in years three and four, I acquired two sponsees. I also was running 5Ks. I started hot yoga. So this is when my physical well-being started to really flourish. Like, I guess uh, nutritionally, I was getting what I needed. Um, So my body was feeling strong enough to start using it more. Um, So I was running, I was doing hot yoga. And I also, this is during this time that I remember walking outside and having the moment of clarity where I realized that I know serenity. And this is one of the promises. So this is promise number four. We will comprehend the word word serenity and we will know peace. So that happened in years three and four. And I started to become a leader at work. So it wasn't just my body that was getting stronger. My mind was getting stronger and my brain was functioning better. You know, I could think more clearly. It's the only way that I can explain it. I saw beauty in things that I never saw before, ever, (laughs) ever. I remember driving into work and passing things like, you know, like a I don't know, not a groundhog, but maybe a groundhog on the side of the road, um, alive. (laughs) And it was just like sitting there, you know, kind of looking at the cars going by and I smile or I see a squirrel and I smile or I see a, a child like playing in the front yard, like in the morning, uh, on the way to work. And I smile at the beauty of that. It's just, um, I had a whole different lens I was looking through. So that started in, in three and four. And um, and then I also switched sponsors during this time uh, for no reason other than I was going to be moving. And so the promises that came through during this came true during this time were number one, if we're painstaking about this phase of our development, then we will be amazed before we were halfway through. Um, So I'm at year seven, I'm rounding the corner of year seven. And I would say, at year three, I was amazed. And, And so I, you know, that was halfway before we were halfway through. I mean, what that's halfway through the steps, I think they mean. Um, But really, I think amazement, you know, the longer I'm sober, the more amazed I become. So amazement just started around then, you know, and I continue to be more and more amazed. And then 
Promise number three, we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. This took a few years for me, <laughs> for sure. And I think there are still just a couple events in my life that I'm still challenged not regretting, but I definitely understand not wishing to show the, shut the door on it. Most things I don't regret anymore. There's just, just I think, two that I have a hard time finding how I cannot regret that. So uh, still work in progress, you know, and that's okay. And promise number five, which is no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. And again, that is, that's what I started to feel, you know, as I said, in years three and four, I began to see my experience as something that could lend hope to others. And I began to deeply care for the well-being of those in the fellowship. And then uh, promise number eight, self-seeking will slip away. Um, And that, again, same thing, you know, I was starting to care so much about the people that I was in sobriety with. It was like, you know, it's a we program. I get that. You know, I got that during that time. I was starting to understand that this isn't about me. This is about all of us. We're kind of, we're all in the boat, you know, and if anybody falls out, we reach over and help them back in. So year number five, this is when I moved uh, from Charlestown out here to the Sterling area, and um, I began to feel even more like I had something to give. Now, this is before my stroke. I was feeling very much at work like my program, you know, people didn't know it, but I was working my program on them all the time um, because it's a program for how to live. And it it really was was doing such a good job guiding me that I would use it to help guide others. And it was working, you know, it seemed to be working. People were coming to me and asking, like, how would you handle this situation? And it still happens today. But I really feel like it, in year five, I really started to get folks coming to me. And, um, and I felt very strongly that I had something to give that that could be helpful to others, both in sobriety, um, as a people leader at work, as a sister and a daughter and a mom and a girlfriend. Like, I felt like I was participating in my relationships and being helpful. I was very active during this time. Year five was probably the most active I have ever been in my life. Um, I was hiking with my dog, uh, Autumn, my Weimaraner. I was doing yoga, and this is right when um, COVID was kicking off as well. I guess it had already kicked off. So I was doing yoga every day. I was running, and I was kayaking, and you name it. You know, I was so active all the time. And then I had my stroke. So um, I think it's kind of cool. It didn't hit me until just this moment how before I had my stroke, it was the most active I've ever been in my life, that I was really at a really good place. That You know, that seems like up until this moment, that has seemed to me like, a, oh, poor Rachel, you were so active and now you can't do any of those things. But at this very moment, when I think about it, it seems like I was gifted with the ability to do all of those things before I had my stroke. So I'm kind of looking at it a little differently just right this second. I don't know why, but that's a good thing. 
And I had my stroke. So then I was struggling with pain management because, as you know, I've had a headache every day since my stroke in June of 2021. So I really started thinking about muscle relaxers. This pain in my head um, feels like the muscles in my head are tightening like a rubber band around my head. So muscle relaxers is the thing that my mind goes to and or has gone to. And my response to this has been leaning into work and leaning into my sobriety program. That's that's what I did from year five to seven while I was in denial um, from my stroke. Like while I was in denial being like, oh, there's no way I have to like stop working or go on long term disability. Like it's just a headache. It'll go away um, until things got worse and my vision got worse and all my symptoms got worse. My cognitive language and speech started getting worse. Um, and But during this time, I still had promises coming true, believe it or not. So I have promise number nine, my whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. So that was right before my stroke. Um, and honestly, it continues to change as I've had this life-altering event of my stroke happen. But before my stroke, I really was looking at life like I was looking at my body as a gift that I was given that has that was allowing me to do all of those fun things. Doing yoga, going hiking, going biking, going kayaking, like I felt for the first time in my life that I was given this this body that is like a gift that's like my playground that I get to go use and go be active and enjoy the world and stuff. I was thinking that before my stroke. Um, and I remember thinking that all the time. I remember thinking that I started thinking that when I started hot yoga, uh, Hot yoga was an introduction to me on how incredible our bodies are. And it was the first time I had ever uh, profusely sweated, (laughs) which actually felt amazing. Um, But with that, I started doing all these other running. Running was was an amazing experience for me that my body was able to do that because I had never done it before. I was always drinking. So I hardly ever moved my body. Um, So my whole attitude and outlook on life changed for for sure during this time. Um, Promise number 10, fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. That was year five for me. Year five was when I finally was financially uh, back, you know, like I had paid off all of my debt and I never imagined my whole life that I was going to be able to pay off all my debt. And I did by year five. So that was incredible for me. And, um, I no longer, you know, because of that was fearing institutions, you know, who were calling me and trying to get their money or anything like that. So just an incredible, relief to experience that. And then promise number 11, we will intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle us. And I think this goes hand in hand with that ability to start feeling like I had something to give to others. I started just intuitively knowing how to handle things because I stopped fighting what was happening. I started recognizing that during this time that I can't control people, places, and things. I can't control what's happening around me. All I can do is control my reaction to it. And this, this was for me the translation of this promise 
We will intuitively know how to handle situations with which used to baffle us. Really, for me, it was just stop getting, you know, get out of your own way. Stop trying to inject yourself in, in everything. Stop trying to think that you can fix everything. Like, for me, it was, okay, do I insert myself here or do I not? Does this person, is this my problem or is this somebody else's problem? It was kind of my ability to to stand back and look at things in a simpler way. Uh, I, I didn't get all spun up about things anymore. And I continue to have that ability. You know, my husband is a huge help. And, you know, if I get to a point where I'm like, I'm not really feeling like I'm processing this very well, sitting with him and talking it through is like an incredible (laughs) gift that I have. Um, So anyway, yeah, I mean, step 11 for sure is it absolutely has come true for me. And then that brings us to years six and seven. And years six and seven, this is where I believe I, you know, and this is honestly just the past couple months that I have felt like step 12, or not step 12, promise number 12 has become, has started to become true for me. So promise number 12 says, we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And um, I've just had some really strange experiences lately. And it's almost undeniable. It's, it's quite it's not even, um, I don't want to share necessarily, but it's like everything I'm doing right now is like going back to this whole God thing. Um, everything, everything I do, it's like, I can't even avoid it. (laughs) It's just constant. The God, this God, that God, I mean, no matter who I talk to, it's, um, it's there. And, it's like, you know how like the past month I've been having a difficult time and I started going to the psychiatrist and everything and it's like all of a sudden the psychiatrist isn't talking about God, but it's like all of a sudden everywhere I go or anything I listen to is like God this, God that. And I don't know, it's making me feel better. And I guess it's making me think a little more, which is not a bad thing, you know. Um, I don't know. I've just, I'm experiencing a lot of strange stuff lately. That's, we'll just leave it at that. So in the past uh, two years, years six and seven, was, uh, I was in denial, but I kept applying my sobriety program. And, um, I did it the best I knew how for the denial that I was in. I got to the point, however, that I recognized that my life was unmanageable again, the same way that I did seven years ago when I decided I needed to get sober. Um, same thing. I realized that I can't go on like this. And that's what happened again. And so this is when I invited Rachel version 3.0. And that's who that's who we're talking to today, <laughs> Rachel 3.0. And, and now I continue to really, I don't, you know, I struggle with, am I reinventing myself? I don't know, because I just, you know, two episodes ago, I was just talking about my core has not changed, you know? Um, but I am rebuilding around it. 
You know, I'm rebuilding that sandcastle that I've talked about since the beginning of this podcast. And by doing things like sewing, um, baking, and I'm continuing to, I think where I'm starting to find the most enjoyment is continuing to try to grow a network in the blind and low vision community and stroke community. And then of course my beloved sobriety community, but I'm starting to feel connected a little more. And I feel like there's something there. Like that's, I need to keep going in that direction. I need to keep building in that area, especially, yeah, I was going to say especially in the blind and low vision, but I wouldn't say especially. It's a, it's in all three, really, in stroke recovery, blind and low vision, uh, community, and sobriety. All of these things are really, you know, they're helping. I, I am working hard every day to try to figure all this out and hopefully... Um, by me working hard and figuring it out and then sharing my experience that others will not have to work so hard to figure it out. So just like that, our time together is wrapping up today. Um, Walking through the past seven years has brought back a lot of memories and it's good for me to remember what it was like and why I'm here. And It's always good to strengthen my resolve to keep going on the path that I'm on, um, to keep staying away from a drink, keep working hard at recovery. And maybe you found a bit of your story and mine, seeing those promises unfolding in different ways. I like to think back at those times because sometimes it's just abundantly clear to me that I have achieved another promise. And um, so I enjoy it. The promises are are kind of a fun thing to go back and look at. So I recommend um, going back and, and doing a little timeline. It really wasn't much effort to do a little timeline for myself and see when did this happen, you know, and maybe by doing that, you might be able to help somebody else who's thinking, oh, I really... I can't imagine not regretting the past nor wishing to shut the door on it. Well, you can tell them when it happened for you, and that might be helpful for them. So thank you for joining me today on the Recovery Daily Podcast, and I will talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.